So in today's episode, I'm excited to talk to Dr. Matt Makel. Matt is an associate research scientist at the Johns Hopkins School of Education. Previously, he was the director of research and evaluation at the Duke University Talent Identification Program. His research focuses on academic talent development and open science research methods. In talent development, he investigates the equitable allocation of gifted identification and services, as well as how schools can better meet student learning needs. In open science, he explores how to improve research transparency and rigor so that society can better understand the generalizability, reproducibility, and replicability of research findings. He argues the influence of education research is too great to be driven by narrow, irreplicable results. He has conducted direct and conceptual replications, both in collaboration with authors and independently. He and Jonathan Plucker co-edited an American Psychological Association book entitled Toward a More Perfect Psychology, Improving Trust, Accuracy, and Transparency in Research. Today, we'll be discussing Matt's 2021 article with Dr. Jonathan Plucker, an educational psychologist entitled, Replication is Important for Educational Psychology, Recent Developments and Key Issues, which is part of an entire special issue on educational psychology in the open science era. Matt, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I wish Jonathan could have made it with us, but I'm happy to try to represent his thoughts and views for him with you today. Thanks so much, Matt. We appreciate it. Can you give us a brief summary of the main focus of your article? Sure. In our paper, we discuss the relevance and the value of replication in educational psychology, and then we try to address several themes of various challenges related to replication work. When we talk about replication in the last 10 years or so with our friends and colleagues, we found several themes and critiques that come up, and so we tried to address many of those in this paper to help expand the conversation about replication so that we weren't limited to just kind of an introductory, here's the basic concept of the idea. We love having that conversation, but we also want to move the conversation forward. That's great. And I think your article does a really nice job of that. I'm excited for people to read it. I think some of our listeners may be somewhat new to ideas in open science in general and replication in particular. So it might help to just do a little bit of ground laying here. Can you help us understand what replications are and the purpose they serve, as well as the differences between direct and conceptual replications? Absolutely. So replication at its core is the intentional repetition of previous research. And as you mentioned, there's two common types of replications, direct and conceptual. With a direct replication, that's where researchers are trying to follow the exact methodological recipe as the original research. They really are trying to keep everything as close to the same as possible as the original research. In conceptual replication, that's where the replicating researchers intentionally change some aspect of the research. And that could be some type of the population. So like if the original research was studying first graders, maybe the replicators want to see, do they get the same findings with kindergarten students? Or instead of working in urban schools, they see if they get similar effects in rural schools. And so those are the behavioral differences, but the rationale and what they're trying to accomplish differ as well. So in direct replication, the goal is to kind of verify the original research. They found it. Can we find it too? Whereas conceptual replications are really trying to assess generalizability or whether or not there's boundary conditions to what the original research team had found. That, that's a really important and helpful distinction. And your article goes into even more detail about 
kind of the differences between those two and you know, what they can do and what they're designed to do. So I encourage our listeners to check out your article for more information there. Another thing you have in your article is a discussion of some of your research on replication rates in various fields. Can you tell us what you found when you looked at that? Yeah. So in the last 10 years, Jonathan and I, often with a variety of other colleagues, have done a family of studies estimating how often authors report replicating previous work across a variety of fields. We've looked at psychology, education, special education, even criminology. And I think we've found maybe four big themes when we look at those research literatures. The first theme is that replications are pretty rare. Very few papers are framing themselves as we are trying to replicate some previous research. In psychology, it was just over 1% of papers, and in education, it was 0.13%, with all the others kind of falling in between. So some variety between 1 in 100 and 1 in 1,000 papers was trying to replicate a previous finding. The second theme that we found was that conceptual replications are far more common than direct replications, even within that subset of papers. Third, we found that the majority of replications in all those fields actually claimed to successfully replicate the original study. In some previous fields, the worry was that, oh, we can't replicate anything. But in in our work, we found that in general, the replication papers were saying, yeah, we found something similar to what the original paper had found. But another final theme that we found was that the success of the replication was less likely to happen when there was no authorship overlap between the replication and the original authorship team. So that's interesting. So that gets at, I think, some of the questions people have about replications and their purpose. And in your article, you talked about the philosophy around replications, methodology of replication, professional implications of replication, and the utility of replication. I thought that was a really nice framing to talk about what replications are, what they can do for the field, and what they might mean or how we might make sense of them. So your last point speaks to something that I wanted to get into, which was some people feel like replications are adversarial in nature or that they're somehow a critique of research. And and you speak well in the article about how that's not necessarily the case. So when you have a finding like uh, replications are less likely to be successful when there's no overlap between authors, how should we understand that? How should we interpret that particular finding? Well, I think there could be a variety of reasons for why a replication result is different than the original research result. And the my latest kind of example that I like to try to give is that conducting a replication based solely on the published method section in the paper kind of reminds me of like trying to bake a recipe during the technical challenge of the Great British Bake Off. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know, in, in the technical challenge of the Great British Bake Off, the contestants are given an extremely vague recipe where it says things like mix the flour and the salt together to create something. Mm -hmm. And no specifics are given. It's not a step-by-step checklist that anyone competent trying to do it could actually follow. And so in the research realm, if a reasonably smart person just reads the method section, you can follow a lot of it along, but there's so many 
unwritten, unspoken, kind of invisible curricula of conducting research decisions that are made by a research team that can have really consequential impact. So one specific example that I came across when I was conducting a replication with the original research team, we were coding different occupations that individuals, that kids had once they grew up. And the original team had the types of codes that they had of of different job titles And one of the participants or individual's job title was a managing partner at a law firm. And so then I got to that and then I looked at the code book that we were using in the replication and I wasn't 100% confident whether or not I should code that individual as a lawyer or as an administrator executive Mm -hmm. because they were both. Mm -hmm. But the way the coding system was set up, we had to pick one or the other. And if I hadn't been collaborating with the original team, it's almost a coin flip as to whether or not I used the same thought process that the original team had used when they were coding for their paper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the moral of that story is that there can be many explanations as to why a replication gets a different result from an original paper that has nothing to do with the replicators trying to prove the original research team wrong or anything like that. I think many replicators, myself included in some of my work, believe the original research to be true, but want to verify it or see if it's still true in a different population, like with a conceptual replication. Mm-hmm. It can be you know, trying to use the original research as a solid foundation to build upon it. And I think that's a really important point, right, is that the purpose of replication isn't to find bad science. It isn't to uh, necessarily identify where people went wrong. It really is a genuine attempt to better understand phenomena and our explanations of them. And I think it's, it's, it's very difficult to think through all the various things that one would need to list out in a method section to ensure someone else can replicate. I think that's, it's really difficult to do, particularly when it's your work. And so, the kind of partnership you're talking about between you and the original authors makes a lot of sense to me because through no fault of their own, the original authors might not have stated something that's really important or that you need. That's not their fault. It's not a bad thing. It's not a condemnation of their work. It's just a reality. And, you know, you've reached out and got the information you needed. That strikes me as perfectly reasonable. Yeah. And if research teams really had to create a step-by-step process where any other researcher could exactly replicate their steps, method sections would be incredibly long, (laughs) Um, which I think it's great. Many journals have moved to policies where method sections do not count toward the word limit, or you can create online supplements that have a lot more detail in it, which I think is all hugely, hugely important. Mm -hmm. But as you know, to your point, it's really hard to recognize oh, this is every decision I made Mm -hmm. and be able to write that down for others. And I think some publications where they have the same hypothesis and have many analysts try to answer the same hypothesis with the same data set and showing huge variability of the results that different analytic teams get, even while addressing the same question using the same data set, shows, I think, how difficult replication must be because what if you had a slightly different research question or a different data set or a different process or tweaked the hypothesis a little bit? Of course, we're going to see variability across results when that happens. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. And again, I think what's important here is that doesn't mean that the original authors did anything wrong or were acting in some way that was negligent. It's a reality that what we're doing, empirical research is difficult, it's nuanced. And the more that we can convey the decisions that we made and the more we can help others replicate our work, the more confidence we'll have that what we're reporting is an accurate representation of what's happening in the real world. So I think it's important to try to keep a benevolent lens on replication. That's my sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the statistician Andrew Gelman has a really interesting thought experiment that he calls the time reversal heuristic. Mm-hmm. And so imagine if rather than the replication being the second paper out, what if it was the first paper out and the original paper had come out second? Would that influence your interpretation of what the results mean or don't mean? Mm-hmm. And if it does, why? Mm-hmm. Or why not? I try to do that when I'm looking at replication research results is to not necessarily put a different criteria for credibility or persuasion on an original paper or a replication paper. Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, a first study gets published and say they found what they hypothesized. Great. That's a piece of evidence. Second study comes out that's replication. They don't find something. That doesn't mean the first study is wrong doesn't mean the first study is bad. It means that we have two pieces of information that you know don't say the same thing. We probably want many more pieces of information before we make a final judgment about the hypothesis. And I think that time reversal heuristic that you mentioned is a nice you know thought experiment. If we flip those, it shouldn't really change how we're interpreting the evidence as a whole. It simply means that there's more work that needs to be done. Yes, and some other researchers have kind of suggested a golden rule of replication where you should replicate the research of others like you would want your research to be replicated. (laughs) So, So be kind. I like that. That's always a good rule. Another thing that I hear quite a bit about replication is that it's a a valid concern and something we we need to do for highly controlled laboratory-based studies, but that replication is less feasible or maybe even less relevant for research done in the field or other natural contexts. What do you say to statements like that? Well, I think that's, that's particularly relevant in a field like educational psychology, where so much of our work, we want to be relevant and practical in the real world. Mm-hmm. And I think today in the U.S., the coin of the realm in schools is evidence-based practice. Mm-hmm. And if schools don't know if research results apply to their students in their context, how can it be evidence-based? Mm-hmm. And if we as researchers aren't sure whether our results will be relevant in particular classrooms, in particular schools, don't teachers want to know that? Mm-hmm. If it's a particularly fragile finding where it's only going to be relevant to some students or in some contexts, I think it's our duty to help inform practitioners, policymakers, and parents what the constraints on generality of our findings are. Mm -hmm. And I think in education, there are some research results that are pretty generalizable across findings and across students. If you look at things like practice effects or spaced practice, Mm -hmm. that's been tested in a lot of different environments. And I feel pretty confident that that's useful information for teachers to know. Mm -hmm. But if things like rereading a text has generally found to be not effective, that's good for teachers and students to know as well if we want them to support effective study practices. But if we don't know what the limits to the generalizability of our findings are, 
I think we need to communicate that to teachers and parents and practitioners, because if it's not going to be relevant to their student or their kid, the research results probably pretty trivial to them. They want to know, I mean, that's the, the advice I give to grad students and early career researchers all the time when they're talking to practitioners. They want to be effective. Practitioners want to know what can they do in their classroom on Monday morning mm-hmm. that's going to help them accomplish their goals. Mm-hmm. And if we are going to be a relevant research community for the rest of the world, I think we need to communicate that pretty well. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have the confidence in our findings that they're going to replicate in the real world, I'm really hesitant that we should be talking to the rest of the world about the relevance of our findings and whether or not they should be using them. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. This question of what findings are applicable where and how is a really important one. And to me, it strikes me, it's, it's an empirical question. We very well might find out that most education or educational psychology findings are radically situated, right? That, that you know, they only work in, in very, very specific contexts with very, very specific kinds of students and teachers, et cetera. And that, that's an empirical question that might bear out. But like you said, I think there are some findings that do seem to be replicable across contexts, across different kinds of students. And that's really important to know. But if we don't try, if we don't investigate, if we don't try to replicate, we'll never know what is you know, radically situated versus what is more generalizable. So I really appreciate that in your article, you talk about the importance of trying to replicate field studies, trying to replicate uh, studies that happen in very natural contexts. You talk about interest right now in developing replication guidelines for non-experimental research and qualitative research, which I think some people might go, well, how, how would that work? Can you talk to us about the current thinking in those areas? Yeah, I think... With qualitative research, I'm going to say something that I enjoy saying quite a bit, and I want to preface it with that, saying I I don't know. Mm -hmm. Replication may not fit the qualitative paradigm as well as it does in the quantitative paradigm, or it may only fit in certain circumstances, like to your point of radically situated. It may be situated in the qualitative environment. I think qualitative researchers have a much stronger history of self-reflecting and looking at how context may influence their results and what they're finding. And I think a lot of open science and replication work is the quantitative realm catching up to them in their sense. Mm -hmm. And so I think in the quantitative research area, replication comes into play when researchers say, you know, oh, I found this result in this sample and think it will generalize to other samples too. So that the implication is replicability. But in the qualitative paradigm, if generalizability to other samples is not an inference being made, replicability may be less relevant. Sure. But I still think some of the values that support replicability in the quantitative domain are still going to be relevant in qualitative research. So just like how reporting in effect size may not be as relevant in qualitative research, I think sharing the results that communicate some sort of magnitude of the effect is still going to be relevant in both quantitative and qualitative research. And there's a lot of people in the qualitative field who are looking at when do we care about replicability? When do we not? Mm -hmm. What can we do about it? I think there's actually even a special issue that just got announced in social psychology where they're looking at replication in qualitative research. Yeah, and I really like that it's qualitative researchers asking the question. And as you said, 
you know, we don't know. Maybe replication is not an issue in qualitative research, but maybe it is. But we should at least think about it. And I'm excited for that special issue. And I'm glad that they're taking a hard look at, you know, what would replication, what were the values underneath the purpose of replication? What would that mean for a qualitative context? I know that a lot of qualitative research is valued because it brings to light things that previously people didn't know about or maybe didn't get the attention they deserve. It seems to me that it'd be valuable to determine whether or not a novel finding from a qualitative study in a particular context is similar to what is happening in a different context. And that strikes me as kind of replication. It's kind of replication-ish. And so I think there's a lot of interesting questions to be asked about what replication could be in qualitative research. And I'm glad your uh, article gets into that. Yeah. If it goes back to the inferences that a researcher is trying to make in qualitative research, if you're trying to assess a theory or refine a theory, I think replication could be relevant in qualitative research to do multiple contexts and multiple researchers. Are they able to assess a theory and find results that align or support that theory qualitatively? And I find that I would trust a theory more if multiple independent qualitative researchers can go into different contexts and find different results that are all support that theory's hypotheses. Mm-hmm. So maybe a slightly different form of replication than you know making inferences about generalizability quantitatively, but it still fits the larger paradigm. Yeah, what is relevant where and how? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think another thing that you talk about in the article that's important is that you strongly disagree with people who say that replications distract or detract from creative contributions to the literature. And this gets into that whole debate about, you know, should journals be focusing on the novelty of findings or the, you know, the creative contribution to the literature? And in your article, you argue that might not be the right way to think about it. How should we be thinking about replications in comparison or competition or in relation to studies that find a quote unquote novel finding? You know, I think one of Jonathan's most highly cited, or if not his most highly cited article in his career is proposing a definition of creativity. And it actually talks about sociocultural context and the importance of that in assessing whether or not something is creative. But the other two really big features that are common in almost every definition of creativity that you will come across has to do with novelty and usefulness. And I think our worry is that too often in the research realm, too much emphasis is put on novelty of a concept or an idea or a paper or a publication, and not enough emphasis is put on usefulness. And so in our framing, if a finding cannot be replicated, how useful is it? And if it's not particularly useful because only one research team could find it or only one research team could find it once, I don't think that's particularly useful in terms of real-world application or in theory assessment and building. And so if a paper or Mm -hmm. a concept does not fit that usefulness criterion, I don't know how we can consider it a particularly creative contribution to the research community. Yeah, I like that. That the idea of novelty and usefulness does kind of broaden what we mean by a contribution to the literature. Because um, as you said, contributions that are novel but are not found in any other context or any other population, they're interesting. I'm not sure 
how they're going to help us help students learn more effectively. And so that usefulness piece really does help us open up to replications as not in competition with, but as a complement to studies that found something novel. So I like that juxtaposition and I like that it doesn't make replication adversarial to other kinds of research. It really is complementary. Yeah, but what's interesting there, I think, is a long, a couple years, a while ago, when Walter Michel was president of the Association of Psychological Science, he wrote a presidential column in the APS Observer talking about the toothbrush problem, mm-hmm. where psychologists treat other people's theories and work like toothbrushes so that nobody wants to use anyone else's. And I feel like in replication, we almost have a a double toothbrush problem in the creative realm of we don't want to spend our time replicating somebody else's work because then the culture says you're not being particularly creative. You're brick building or you're you're not creating that new novel finding. But then the double problem, I feel like with replication is a lot of researchers, to your point about the concerns about being adversarial, is... We're also worried, well, what if somebody tries to replicate my work? Mm-hmm. What's, what's wrong there, too? And so it becomes another bit of a toothbrush problem. We don't want to spend our time replicating other people's work, but then we're also worried if somebody wants to reuse our toothbrush mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that toothbrush example. That's, that's a great one. It's very vivid. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, how do we change this culture? How do we change the toothbrush problem, the adversarial nature that some people assume about replications? How do we create a research culture that is more amenable to replications and open science? I think it's a great question. And the way I try to frame this topic is to think about how we can better align our actions with our values and what we're trying to accomplish. And so that makes me a little wary to make concrete policy recommendations for right now, because I think we really need to be considerate about what policy changes and things would mean. But at the same time, I'm really wary about status quo bias, Mm -hmm. especially when I do not think that the status quo is particularly strong in terms of us as a field being able to effectively and efficiently develop and test theory or to talk to policymakers, parents and practitioners about Yep, this would be helpful to your student in your particular context with any level of confidence. Mm -hmm. And so I think a slow and thoughtful consideration of changing the culture is warranted. And so how to do that, I think we can look at things like in um, David Mellor, who's at the Center for Open Science, wrote another article in the Educational Psychologist Special Issue that talks about culture change and covers a lot of this, I think, really, really well Mm -hmm. and talks about things like changing incentives. And I think potentially reframing how we answer questions like, what does a successful study look like? Mm -hmm. What does a successful career look like? Or what does a successful field look like? And I think in educational psychology and in a lot of other fields, there's some mixed messages in those answers. Because I think in a strong field, There's many replications, and we have a high degree of confidence of knowing what is and is not replicable. Mm -hmm. But is a strong individual career full of many replications, and we spend a lot of our time knowing which of our results are and are not replicable? I, I don't know if our incentive structure is built the same way to support a strong career the same way we want. Um, a field to be strong. 
Yeah, I do think that the open science movement and a lot of the recommendations on how to make the work better will require us to think differently about what a good career looks like. So I'm really glad that you brought up that point. I mean, to me, someone could do many, many novel empirical studies and yet have them be relatively trivial in terms of their contribution to the field. I don't think it's necessarily the case that every novel empirical study is worthy of, you know, saying that person's making such a great contribution. You really have to look at it carefully and say, like, you know, is this building our understanding? Is it advancing the field? Is it helping educators and students, et cetera? And I think the same is probably true for replications, right? There'll be some replications that could really advance our understanding of phenomena and how to help students. And there may be some other replications where we go like, hmm, I don't know that we learned so much from that. So I, I would be hesitant to say that a judgment of an individual's career can be made solely upon, you know, are they doing just quote unquote novel work versus replication work? You have to look deeper. And I think that's what you're saying too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think whether or not a replication or an original study is viewed as providing a lot of value to the field is going to really depend on a host of factors, mm -hmm. in, including, I think, whether or not it's relevant to a particular policy. So a, a paper that came out not too long ago was attempting to replicate the finding of whether or not it mattered if college students took notes via pen and paper or mm -hmm. via a laptop. Yep. And the original finding said that you have to get rid of the laptops mm -hmm. and students performed better when pen and paper notes. But then Heather Uri at Tufts, and I think it was actually her um, research methods class students, tried to replicate the finding and they could not replicate it. And they did a mini meta analysis and found a host of other studies that also generally synthesized to saying, yeah, let's maybe we need to move forward. And so now whether or not students take notes via a laptop or pen and paper may not be a huge policy change. But if we looked at some fundamental assumptions that we took in education and tried to replicate like, oh, is this actually true? Do we have evidence to support this? And replication caused us to question that and then made us look more deeply and looked at and reassess some of these policies, I think that could just be hugely, hugely important. And that's kind of my worry about status quo bias is that just we're assuming all of the policies and practices that we have have that really strong, generalizable evidence base. And I'm pretty sure there's probably some holes and gaps there that we would benefit from knowing what's solid and what is not. I agree. And you know, that's a really wonderful example. So I remember when that study came out and it got a lot of attention both in the field and in practice and in the, kind of the popular press. And I, I'm also aware of the replication that you're referring to where they didn't find evidence of a difference between, you know, using a laptop versus handwriting or how elaborative your note taking was. That is not a condemnation of the authors of the original study at all. Right. I mean, I think when people take it that way, it can lead to this culture of fear around replications. It's about advancing the work. It's about advancing our understanding. And each study helps us better understand the phenomenon. And, you know, it may turn out in the long run that there is some kind of difference between taking notes on a laptop and handwriting, or it might not. But let's do the work and try to figure it out. And let's let's focus on the work and not make attributions to the authors, because um, that's just not that's not how good science works. No, absolutely. And that's where it could be just a matter of sampling bias, whether or not it's you know in the original research or in the replication, that it's really hard, I think. And I know I've had this too when I've had some 
researchers reach out to me saying, oh, they're thinking about trying to replicate one of my studies. Could they get some of the materials in the survey that I used because they want to replicate it? Like, A, that's hugely flattering, but there's not a small part of me that also has a little bit of worry about, oh, well, what if mm-hmm. they find out that I'd made a mistake? And mm-hmm. that does cause a little, you know, heart rate to increase a little bit. Sure. But then when I think about the bigger picture and try to take myself out of it would be if there is a mistake, especially in my work, do I want the world to keep assuming that what I had done is correct? Mm-hmm. Or do I want to correct that mistake. Right. I, I want to know about it. Um, and I want the world to know about it. Now, hopefully that it's not going to have huge consequences for me. But I think when I've seen original authors, there's a variety of different you know responses that you could take. There's some, some people who get pretty defensive and others who have come out and been pretty straightforward and say, oh, I learned something. I'm mm-hmm. updating my beliefs. And to me, I think the best kind of most mature thing that a researcher or that we want citizens to do is to update their beliefs when new evidence comes to light and not necessarily be stuck in, this is what I thought at this time point and nothing's ever going to to change my mind. Right. But I think that can be accomplished more effectively when, to your point, the focus is on the research and the finding and to not make it personal about I want to prove this person wrong or I want to take them down a peg or anything like that. Similar to how we shouldn't be doing research to try to build ourselves up either. Yeah, I I totally agree. I would even say if someone does some research, they have a finding and then later someone can't replicate it. Maybe many people can't replicate it. The original research is still valuable. It's not a mistake. It's not, it's not a condemnation of those authors. They found something we you know, did more work, we found out it didn't replicate. Okay, we all understand something better. That's great. And I don't think any link in that chain was somehow faulty. And I think if we can start thinking about replication and the progress of science that way, I think it'll be less threatening to people. And, you know, I think it's also the case that we should admit, as you said, when we update our beliefs. So just real quickly, so I'm not going to get into the details, but, you know, I published something and I had some ideas about theory and I made a couple claims. And then a number of years later, a publication came out and kind of made this argument that one piece of what I had written didn't make sense didn't really align with the definitions that were out there. And I read that and went, yeah, they're right. Okay. That, that didn't make sense. And I didn't think that was a big deal. And I was at a conference and we were on a panel in a symposium and the other author was on the panel too. And at one point in front of a crowd, I said, you know what? I really appreciate you publishing that. You know, I think you're right. Like that, that piece of what I said doesn't make any sense. And there was this gasp you know, in the audience. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness. And I, I just kind of looked out of the audience. I said, this is not a big deal. I mean, you know, I, plenty of things I say are not correct and, you know, or could be better. And, you know, all we're doing is improving the field. So I think, you know, if we can get past the point where someone admitting that they've changed their mind about something they published previously doesn't lead to a big gasp, I think we're headed in the right direction. Yeah, I think think you're right. And I think actually your example is a great answer to your own question of how can we help change in the culture is even in very small steps is modeling that behavior is showing that, yeah, I can update my beliefs about something that even if I'd published on it previously, that I'm not going to just stick to my guns and say, this is absolutely right. And anybody who tries to question this, I'm going to attack. And I think that's the worry, especially for a lot of early career folks, is that if they try to replicate something that a more established person had done, and what if they don't get the same results? 
there's some really big power dynamics that can be pretty concerning. But at the same time, early career folks, if they don't successfully replicate a previous finding, can they publish that anywhere? And if they can't publish it anywhere, do they have a chance at getting a job? Mm -hmm. And what happens to their careers if they happen to choose a research finding that has been published that they think is true, mm -hmm. they try to replicate it and can't, and they spend you know years of their graduate career on this particular area. But then if we don't publish these replications or only publish successful replications, what are we doing for that individual's career? And it's not just one person, that's you know dozens, if not hundreds of graduate students every year are going through this themselves. Right. And that, that's a really important point because there's been a lot of talk about, well, maybe we should ask graduate students to replicate something as part of their professional preparation. If we do that, and I, I don't think that's a terrible idea, but if we do that, we've got to make it so that regardless of what they find, it's publishable, it's valued, and it helps them advance in their career. And this is where we get to things like registered reports and other kinds of open science practices that are covered in the special issue that can help create an environment where those kinds of outcomes don't hurt early career researchers. They actually help them. And it, you know, it allows them to continue. And so, you know, I really recommend the people listening to look at the entire special issue because it gets into all of these really interesting questions and has ideas about how we might be able to move forward productively. But I, I hundred percent agree with you. We, the field is better when we're doing replications and publishing them regardless of the outcome. And we need to create a culture where those replications are not seen as an attack or adversarial, but are seen as helping everyone better understand what we are trying to understand, student learning, education, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Institute for Education Sciences has this great articulation about how they're trying to find out what works for which students in which contexts. And I think that's a great goal. And it's what practitioners, policymakers, and parents want to know, while it also helps us assess and build theory. And I don't know how we're a successful field of educational psychology if what our work is trying to accomplish isn't one or the other of those goals, if not both. Mm -hmm. And replication, I think, is one tool to help us accomplish that. And I think the other articles in the special issue introduce and discuss a host of other tools that I think will, again, help us align our actions with the values and goals that we have as a field. Totally agree. So we've talked a lot about this particular article and replication, and I think it's been really useful. I also, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, are there things that you're working on right now that you're excited about that, you know, may relate to replication or may not, things that you want to share with us? Yeah, so Jonathan and I, with uh, a couple colleagues, Jarrett Hodges and Brian Cook, also recently published a paper asking education researchers their thoughts and use of various questionable research practices and open science practices, including replication. Mm. And so that paper is available online now in Educational Researcher. And as a part of that data collection, we also asked them some open-ended qualitative research that we're just getting ready to start to analyze. And that's something where we're going to look through our qualitative research lens, and we're going to try something that I've been hoping more folks would experiment with a little bit, and we're going to be pre-registering mm. our qualitative analysis. Interesting. We're still not quite sure yet. We think we are going to have some hypotheses and predictions, but we're also going to try to pre-register our analytic plan just so that we can clearly differentiate, here's our thoughts and our plans before we look at the data, 
mm-hmm. from anything that we do afterward. In mm-hmm. the previous paper, we pre-registered and we ended up having to deviate from our analytic plan after seeing the data. But the paper, it's very clear now, here's the initial plan and then here's the outcome. Whereas I think without pre-registration, it can often become a little murkier about Mm -hmm. if there was a difference before and after folks looked at the data. Mm -hmm. So we really want to get to know what do people think about this? And um, to your point of our educational researchers feeling defensive when issues like replication and data sharing or data peaking, p-hacking and things like that, what are their thoughts about this? Because in our paper, we found that there's not strong uniformity in people's belief about should these practices be used or are they ever appropriate? And mm-hmm. so that's just the kind of the top of the line quantitative mm-hmm. result that we found. And we're really looking forward to digging into the deeper qualitative analysis to see what researchers uh, have to say about these topics and behaviors. Sounds like a really interesting paper and I'm glad you're doing it. And I'm glad that you're continuing to explore how people are thinking about replication, open science practices, questionable research practices, et cetera, because all of this is helping the field get better, which is the ultimate goal. We just want to be able to do better work and have greater confidence in our findings. So thank you for your efforts on that. Thank you. Thanks for your support and for having us or me here to talk to you today about this, because these types of conversations, I think, can really help move the needle or grow the conversation beyond just what is that thing again, or should I be worried about that? to something a little more uh, in-depth. So I appreciate this conversation. It's a lot easier to have this than it is to try to tweet about it in 280 characters. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for this special issue because I do think, as you said, it's going to really help everyone gain a better understanding and kind of a, a more common understanding. And from there, we can explore. And as you state in your article and as guest editors stated in their introductory article, you know, it's it's not clear yet exactly how or in what ways open science will work best in educational psychology. But we need to have the conversation. And I think we need to start thinking through it. And I think the special issue and your article will help people do that more effectively. So thank you for your work on that. Thank you. I hope it does that too as well. So why don't we end it there today? Uh, I encourage all of our listeners to check out your 2021 article with Jonathan Plucker, an educational psychologist entitled Replication is Important for Educational Psychology, Recent Developments and Key Issues. It's part of a special issue of Educational Psychologists on Open Science and Educational Psychology. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me.